Do me a favor, turn in your Bible to the book of John, surprise, chapter 7. I will be in verses 1 to 13 this evening. We've been, over the last two weeks, spending sort of a a concentrated amount of time in John 6. It's this famous portion of the gospel called the Bread of Life Discourse. And it's easy when you sort of chunk up the Bible into a year-long study to forget and lose sight of sort of the drama of the narrative that's happening. So, so let me just remind you of where we've come from because I think it's important for our passage tonight. So Jesus has called the disciples and he's called them out of a, a life of obscurity and into this, this movement of God that, that Christ the Son is leading. The apostles are not impressive people. They, apart from being called by Jesus, would not have made it into, into the pages of history. They're largely uneducated. They're not particularly eloquent. They're kind of at the bottom of the social ladder. And yet Jesus calls these 12 men to be disciples. And, and they leave a lot behind to follow Jesus. Like, I don't know that we adequately appreciate the risk that the 12 take to follow this traveling rabbi who they think might be the Messiah. It's very likely that their friends and family look at them and go, are you sure about this, Peter? Are you sure about this, James? Are you sure about this, John? You barely know this guy. Do you really want to leave behind a stable job? Do you really want to leave behind a a steady income? Do you want to leave behind a hometown and all these friends and family to follow this guy that some of you don't really even know? And yet they're, they're convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. And in their mind, in, in the first century, that means that Jesus is eventually going to raise up an army and he's going to overthrow the Romans. That's what they're expecting of Jesus. And it's that expectation that they bring to John 6, which we've spent the last two weeks in. Um, imagine with that expectation in the back of their minds when they see 5,000 men plus women and children all gathered around Jesus. You're talking about some 20,000 people. They're like, this is the army, right? These, these are the people. And maybe they need some battle training because they're all peasants and they're here for bread, but this is it. These are the people that are gonna help us accomplish Jesus's mission. And Jesus miraculously multiplies the bread. He feeds all of these people. And then we're told in John 6 that they wanna make him king. And the disciples go, Heck yeah, that's exactly what we signed up for. And then Jesus disappears. And they go, what? No, this is, this is, this is why we left everything behind, was so that you could be king, so that you could overthrow the Romans. You've got 20,000 people to help you take Jerusalem. Sure, like, they're farmers, but that's a lot of people. And you just vanish in the middle of the night? And Jesus comes to them walking on the water. And then the next morning, the crowds are back. And you can can almost imagine the disciples thinking, okay, I get it. We got to train 20,000 people. Maybe Jesus disappeared so that he could come up with sort of like a battle school training plan. But the crowds are back. This is it. This is where we overtake the Romans. And then Jesus opens his mouth and starts saying things like, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And you can, you can almost imagine the murmur going through the crowd. What? And the crowd starts to go, is this really the person we want to make king? And then you can, you can almost imagine Peter, like the color draining from his face, like, no, 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 don't say that. Don't say that. We need these people. 
I, I don't know if you've ever kind of stuck your neck out for somebody at work, gotten a friend a job interview, and then maybe they get hired or they, they land the interview and they just totally botch it. Or maybe you've set somebody up on a blind date and they've just done really poorly. <laughs> but you can imagine that that's something of what the disciples are going through as they see these crowds of people that Jesus has amassed one by one leaving because they're offended by what Jesus is saying. We're told at the end of John 6 that many of his disciples heard what, they, what Jesus said and they said, this is a hard teaching. Who can listen to it? And they left. So somehow over the course of a day, Jesus has amassed 20,000 people following him and then he's reduced it right back to 12. That is not a great church growth model. And Jesus at the end of chapter six, he, he turns to the 12 and he says, all right, what about you? Are you gonna leave too? And Peter says, where else would we go? We're convinced that you are the son of God. We'll follow you. But you've got to imagine that they are desperately confused at this point. And it's, it's in the midst of that. It's in the midst of Jesus gathering a following of several thousand people and then shrinking it back down to 12. It's in the midst of that that our passage occurs. We're told in chapter 7, verse 1, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, and so his brothers said to him, leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. And so Jesus withdraws from the crowds that want to make him king but no longer want to make him king. And he withdraws from the region of Judea because the religious leaders want to put him to death. You might remember his confrontation in chapter five for working a miracle on the Sabbath. And his brothers come to Jesus. That is his brothers, quite literally, the, the sons of Joseph and Mary after the birth of Jesus. And, and, and they say to him, essentially, Jesus, you should really go to this feast. Like you, you should really go to this festival, this Feast of Booths. It was one of the main festivals that the Jewish people celebrated. It happened in autumn. It's kind of like our fall festival. Ironically, we set up a bunch of booths during our fall festival too. But this was what they called tents. And they would set up tents throughout Jerusalem. And they would remember God's provision while Israel was in the wilderness. And, and, and the brothers say to Jesus, essentially, listen, um, if you really want this Messiah thing to work, you should try and go win some people back. There'll be, a, there'll be a ton of folks in Jerusalem for this festival. Why don't you go? Why don't you do some miracles? Some of those disciples that thought that this eat my flesh, drink my blood thing was weird, maybe you can convince them to follow you again. The idea being, hey, Jesus, um, the way that you're going about this Messiah thing doesn't seem to be working. Why don't you give our idea a shot? Like, Jesus, the way that you're doing this doesn't seem to be the most effective way, but we've got an idea for how you can be Messiah and actually win some people over, how you can win friends and influence people. I mean, we should be clear because John's clear. Jesus' brothers don't really believe him. They think that he's kind of lost it. But that temptation, I think, is probably present for us as believers just as much as for people who aren't believers. The, the temptation to, to look at the moral commandments of Christ, to look at the commandments of Christ for the church and say, that doesn't seem to work so well. Why don't we try one of my ideas? 
I mean, we, we see what, what's said in the book of Hebrews. I don't neglect meeting together. Don't neglect the, the fellowship of believers. And we go, yeah, but I've got some John Piper sermons and a Hillsong record. So why don't we skip that like actually hanging out with people thing and I'll just take care of it in my room. Listen to a sermon, sing a few songs. That can be my church. Like I know what you said, but I've got an idea that I want to try. Or, or we can look at, I mean, what Jesus says in, in sort of his moral teaching. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And we go, we go yeah, I, I mean, I know you said that, but you don't really know how much this person wronged me. So how about this? I mildly resent my enemies, and I just don't pray bad things on them. How about that? How about we do that instead? I mean, I know what you said, but I've got a better idea because your idea doesn't seem to work so well. Or, or, or I mean, you can, you can look at the, the teachings of the New Testament. Don't be drunk. And we go, how about I'm just only drunk one night out of the week? Like, I know what you said, but like, this idea seems to be working better again and again and again. We see the way that Jesus calls us to, and we say, uh, how about I make a proposition? I mean, this is, this is exactly what Jesus's brothers do. And, and John is very specific. They don't believe him. They don't believe in him. And yet... Every time we, we see the call of Christ and we choose to do something else, in some small way, we reveal that there's a piece of us that doesn't believe him as well. Like, I, I know what you said. I know what you called me to, but let's try something different. But, but look at Jesus' response to his brothers. Jesus said to them in verse 6, My time has not yet come. Your time is always here. The world can't hate you but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. So you go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast for my time has not yet fully come. I don't know if you followed this college admission scandal thing as of late. If you haven't, if you're not aware of it, basically a bunch of rich people use their money to get their kids into colleges that their kids were not smart enough to get into. That is the summary. They, they paid to get their kids into college. Um, it's been interesting because every time I swipe all the way left, that's like what my Apple News is full of, is just those stories. And, and as the trials have started, it's interesting because most of these celebrities are actors and they're trying to manage like their public persona. And so they've actually hired people who are public image experts. I didn't even know you could major at that in college. But it's people whose expertise is helping the general public to like you after you do something bad. And so they've hired these image experts to, to tell them, okay, here's what you post on social media, here's, here's what you say in your public statements, um, here's what you do in interviews. This is how you get people to like you again after you've basically made the whole country resent you. Essentially, Jesus' brothers step in and they go, Jesus, you just lost like 15,000 followers, which sounds like an Instagram metric, right? <laughs> you just lost a lot of followers Here's, here's how you can maybe regain some momentum. And, and, and Jesus' response is, the reason why people don't like me, the, the reason why the world hates me is because I testify that its works are evil. That is to say, the, the reason why people don't like me is because I tell them that what they're doing is wrong. It's not because I made a public relations boo-boo. It's, it's not because I've done anything wrong, but it's because I've been willing to tell the wider world that what they have done is wrong. And that, and that brings out a, a really, really important reality. 
whenever the gospel is truly preached, whenever it's truly proclaimed, there's an element of it that is offensive. Now, it's important here that, that we're careful because there's, there's an awful lot of folks who take their own personal offensiveness in the way they present the gospel and think that the offense is the gospel. Like all of us have like the Aunt Peggy or, or Uncle Tim who just say really mean things on Facebook and then they quote a Bible verse at the end and we've all muted them or unfriended them. And they would tell you, I'm just being persecuted for righteousness. No, you're a jerk. Like you're just being a jerk. So, do, so don't use the offense of the gospel as an excuse to cover up your like insufferable personality. That's, that's not what Jesus is licensing us to do here. And yet he is clear the reason why the world hates me The reason why the world hates me is because I have said something it doesn't want to hear. That is that its works are evil. It's important to come to grips with this. Like it's it's important to to really wrestle with this fact that there is no such thing as a true presentation of the gospel that is unoffensive. Because in order to hold out the work of Christ for the forgiveness of sins, you have to say all have sinned. The work of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins means nothing if we've never done anything wrong to warrant forgiveness. But this is also why having times of repentance built into our own lives and our life together as Christians, that's why it's so important. Because to say all have sinned without including ourselves in that circle, it sets us up for arrogance. But if we say all have sinned, including me, well, then there's a humility in our approach, isn't there? Because we recognize that we include ourselves in that condemnation. It's not just out there for the world, but it's for us. We need the offense of the gospel just as much as everyone else does. But, but notice, notice what Jesus says to and about his brothers. He says, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world can't hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. So Jesus says, the world hates me because I'm telling it it's wrong, but the world can't hate you. What is the implication? The implication of Jesus as he speaks to his brothers is the world can't hate you because you don't look different enough to warrant the world's attention. The implication of Jesus to his brothers is there is nothing in you for the world to hate because you look just like it. You look exactly like the world around you. It won't hate you. I wonder how true Jesus' words to his brothers are when applied to us. Like there is nothing in our Christian lives that makes us look different enough to even warrant the attention of people who aren't believers. Like our, our dating relationships look exactly the same as non-believers. Our work lives with our coworkers and the people in our classrooms look exactly the same. The way that we treat people who wrong us looks no different than the way that a non-believer would. In, in all of these cases, Jesus' words apply to us just as much to his brothers. The world can't hate you. You look just like the world. You are room temperature, so to speak. There is nothing to even draw their attention. And here's here's the great danger for us when we find ourselves in that position. Is is when, when we are operating within the systems of culture that we occasionally criticize, we don't even have a platform to stand on. 
So let me kind of explain what I mean. Uh, eventually, by the grace of God, I've gotten off of social media, not because it's a good or a bad thing, but because it's not right for me. But there was a period of time where in my head I was like, I really need to get off of, I need, I need to just get off of Instagram. And I would make Instagram posts about how I needed to get off of Instagram. And I would like post a picture of my phone and like rant about how terrible Instagram was. And without fail, somebody would rightly say, kind of ironic that you're posting this on Instagram. Because I'm criticizing the system using the system. I'm criticizing the culture from within the culture. Listen, there's nothing wrong with social media. Don't hear me saying that. But, but, but the reality is sort of highlighted there. Like you can't live like the world and then criticize the world if you're happy and content with living the way that it is. When you're room temperature, there's, there's no use in complaining about it. Now the power, the power of the ministry of Jesus is not just that he says to the world what you're doing is evil, but in his life he incarnates a better way. He doesn't just say, this is wrong. He lives in the way that's right, and that's what gives him the power to speak. After Jesus says this, he, he makes this comment. You go up to the feast. I'm not going. My time has not yet come. Now, some translations will say, I'm not going yet. Uh, some people have seen that, and they kind of wrestle with it. They're like, I mean, did Jesus lie? Because the next thing he does is he goes to the feast. He, he just goes by himself after his brothers had gone up. Um, you know, I think, I think the solution to that comes in the fact that if Jesus had really meant to imply he was never going, he would have said, I will not go to the feast. Like, there's a perfectly good phrase in Greek for I have no intention of going. But what Jesus sort of says is I'm not going yet. And, and you see this again and again in Jesus' ministry. He, he refuses to, to play by the demands of people. So Mary shows up at the wedding and says, we're out of wine. And he goes, and what? And then he goes and he makes wine. These people say, come to the feast, and Jesus goes, mm-mm. And then once they leave, he goes. So I think that's kind of funny because Jesus is like, you can't tell me what to do, which they can't. <laughs> and yet Jesus eventually goes. He goes to the feast. And when he gets there, even though he's gone by himself, he's sort of gone undercover, after his brothers have gone up, you see in verse 11, the Jews are looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much murmuring about him among the people. Some said, he's a good man. And others said, no, he's leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. So even though Jesus has gone up in secret, he's, he's traveled separately so as to not call attention to himself, the whole city is alive with conversation about him. Everybody is discussing this miracle worker from Nazareth. And there's some people who think he's, he's a good man. And then there's a lot of people who think he's deceptive. One, one of the theologians that I, I really like is a guy named Peter Lightheart. And one of the things that he says is that you can see what the church outwardly emphasizes in the criticism and the lies that the culture tells about the church. So if you want to know what the church makes, makes the biggest deal about, just ask what non-Christians have to say about Christians. And, that, and you will get a good read on their perception. So, I mean, if you, if you put this question to the situation with Jesus, what is Jesus most emphasizing based on the things that people are saying about him? He's leading people astray, which means Jesus is teaching. He's leading. 
He's communicating. He, he, he's, um, he's engaged in a conversation. He's, he's communicating something with authority. You can go a little bit later past the New Testament, and some of the Jewish writings say that Jesus was a sorcerer. What does that say? Jesus did miracles, right? The criticism tells you what Jesus was doing. If you go back into the early history of the church and say, what were the, what were the lies that culture told about Christians? It might surprise you. Maybe it won't surprise you. Um, there's three things that they said about us. One, they said they're cannibals. And the reason why they said that is because Christians were devoted to taking the Lord's Supper. And non-Christians didn't understand that. The second thing they said is that Christians practice incest. And that was because Christians called one another brother and sister. And they treated one another like brothers and sisters. And the last thing that the culture said about Christians, and this may surprise you, is they said Christians celebrate the ignorant. This is what Celsus, a Roman critic of Christianity, said. He said you celebrate the ignorant. And the reason why they said that is because Christians allowed women to be deaconesses in the church and women were viewed as second-class citizens. It's because Christians allowed bishops or allowed slaves to be bishops and slaves were viewed as less than human. And Christians said that children have dignity and children were less than slaves in the ancient world. So do you celebrate the ignorant? Why? Because Christians upheld the value of those that society deemed insignificant. See, the criticism of Christianity shows what Christians held as being important. The criticism of Jesus shows what Jesus is actually doing. What is, is the most common criticism of Christianity today? I wonder. Well, I'll, I'll tell you. I don't wonder. I looked up the studies. The two most common things that people say about Christians today are that we are judgmental and that we are hypocritical. And here's what's so fascinating about that to me, is that if these criticisms show us what we emphasize, what it says to me, at the very least, is that we are willing to speak like Jesus and that we condemn culture, but we want to live like Jesus' brothers and that we look exactly like the culture that we condemn. That's what the criticism says. We're happy to have the prophetic voice of Jesus and call something sinful, and yet we want to be just like the brothers of Jesus who don't look different enough to have a platform to stand on. What the world sees is that we are happy to criticize, but we don't really believe the standards that we hold out are actually worth following because we don't do it. And yet this isn't how it should be. You know, the, the word of the holiness, the call to holiness that we speak needs to become flesh in our own lives. I mean, the gospel, it's, it's always offensive, but the offense of the gospel should be the gospel itself and not the fact that we don't live it out. That's Jesus' condemnation of his brothers. That's what Jesus gets right, that we as the people of Jesus get wrong. And so my, my hope for us as a ministry is that we would walk in such a way that the world has better things to criticize us about, that the world has better lies to tell about us, that, that no longer is the criticism that they're judgmental and that they're hypocritical, but that it starts to look like the criticism before, that we're committed to the breaking of bread and to the prayers, that we're committed to the dignity of people and treating them with respect that we're not people who speak this word of criticism without embodying the solution, but that like Christ became flesh, the 
call of the gospel would be made flesh in the way that we live our lives. That's how it should be. That's the way that Jesus models for us. May that be the way that we walk in the power of his spirit. Would you pray with me? Lord, we love you. God, I thank you. Thank you um, that you don't let us stay as we are. That the gospel calls us to repentance. But it also calls us to newness of life. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who don't just speak the truth, but we walk in the truth. Uh, That our words would be made flesh in our lives. Lord, that we would be a people who don't just proclaim the gospel with our words, but we embody the gospel with our actions. Lord, convict us where we've fallen short of this. Encourage us where you've placed opportunities in our lives to do this. Strengthen us. We ask that you do all these things in Jesus' name. And we say, amen.